You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. So please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, it's our ninth and final message on the life of Abraham. Genesis 22 has been described as the aesthetic and theological summit of the whole story of Abraham. It is admired both by its beauty in the way that it's written in its narrative style and in its theological significance. Many people, including myself, consider it to be one of the most beautiful chapters in all of scripture. That's not really a surprise because out of all the chapters we've looked at in the book of Genesis about Abraham, um, this chapter is the one um, that where the gospel comes out most fully. The other chapters in Genesis have whispered or given glimpses of the gospel, but here the gospel is on full display. We're gonna see Abraham and Isaac essentially act out the gospel story for us and uh, help us to come to a more, uh, a deeper appreciation for what God has done for us in Christ. Now the other reason why this chapter is so powerful is because we get the privilege of seeing just how far our friend Abraham has come in his faith. We first met him as a sprightly 75-year-old man in Genesis chapter 12, and since then we have walked with him through both his faith and his failures. We've seen him believe God's promise that he would have a son with his barren wife, Sarah, but we've also seen him submit to her impatient, worldly plan to have a son through her maidservant, Hagar. We've seen him charge boldly into battle against some fearsome warlords, but we've also seen him cower in fear at the prospect of foreigners coveting his wife. We've seen him believe God, but we've also seen him question God and doubt God. But through it all, God was with him, shaping him and molding him into a man of faith so that we could look at his example here in Genesis chapter 22 and marvel at how much he trusted God, even in the midst of the hardest of trials. Well, that's how God has shaped him Um, to become a man of faith. It's by trials. It's by testing. Like a master craftsman testing the purity of his metals in the heat of his furnace, God has tested Abraham's faith again and again, not just by calling him to believe, but by calling him to act, to do things. Leave your family and go to the land that I will show you, Genesis 12. Circumcise every male member of your household, Genesis chapter 17. Say goodbye to your beloved son, Ishmael, and let him wander in the desert, Genesis chapter 21. And for the most part, despite his ups and downs and his faith levels, Abraham has passed these tests. He has obeyed, he has trusted God, he has walked by faith. And today we're going to see the Lord bring Abraham through one final test. But this final test is very different than the other ones The other ones, the previous ones, all came with the incentive of reward. Go leave your homeland and I will surely bless you. I will multiply you. I will uh, bring kings from your offspring. 
Abraham stood to gain everything by obeying those previous commands, but obeying this command would mean losing everything. It comes with no promise of reward at all. It would mean giving up what he had longed for most, what he had struggled for the most, what he had desired the most. It would mean losing his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Isaac, and all the great promises of God that came with him. But it is in the midst of this test that we learn not only what it means to walk by faith in the promises of God, but that we come to a deeper and fuller appreciation of God's love for us in Christ. So let's read our text today, Genesis chapter 22. We're gonna read the entirety of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, he was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, uh, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Mekah. The title of this message today is The Lord Will Provide. The Lord Will Provide. My aim today is to show you that walking by faith comes from the testing of faith. Walking by faith comes from the testing of faith. Of faith. We're going to break up our text today into three points. First, Abraham's faith. Second, Isaac's submission. And third, the Lord's provision. First, Abraham's faith. Verse 1 begins by introducing what Genesis 22 is all about. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Now, that's meant to give us a clue as to what the rest of the chapter is about. It's meant to soften the blow of the command that God gives Abraham later on in that verse. We're supposed to read it as a test, not literally. God has a deeper purpose in mind in telling Abraham to do what he is about to call him to do. But Abraham, he doesn't know that it's a test. He doesn't know that there is a deeper purpose here. All he hears is the command from God to do this. So when God calls out Abraham and he replies, here I am, he's ready and willing to submit, but he's not ready for what is to come next. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Well, we should be legitimately asking, how could he do that? How could he give up his son, his only son, the son whom he loved? Now, we know that he had another son, Ishmael, but in Genesis 21, God told him to do what Sarah had told Abraham to do, which is to cast out Ishmael and his mother, Hagar, into the desert because she wanted nothing to do with him. And God said, let that happen. I'm going to take care of Ishmael. I'm going to turn him into a a great nation himself. Abraham already had to give up one son. Would he now have to give up another? How could he do that? The more important question, though, is not how he could do that, but why would he do that? God had told him repeatedly that it would be through Isaac that his offspring would be named. These promises that God has given to Abraham are meant to to go across the generations, through the centuries, through even the millennia, and it was to be through Isaac that those uh, uh, blessings, those promises would be fulfilled. So if Abraham killed Isaac, how would those promises be fulfilled? It would be to crush the seed before it had a chance to sprout, It would be to cut off the stream of God's blessings at the source. So how would Abraham kill him and why would Abraham kill him? Abraham didn't know how and he didn't know why, but remarkably he didn't feel that he needed answers to these questions. He had finally learned the lesson that walking by faith means trusting God 
even when it doesn't make sense to him. It means obeying God despite his own willpower saying, that doesn't make any sense. He would submit to God's will rather than imposing his own. And that's why we see Abraham here taking immediate action in verse three. It says, early in the morning, he saddles his donkey and starts taking steps. He doesn't procrastinate. He doesn't ponder whether he's going to obey or not. He doesn't stop and say, oh, Lord, let me pray about that. Obedience comes immediately without delay. And so he does all, takes all these preparations, takes two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he sets off for the land of Moriah. And though he has two young servants with him, you know, ostensibly to help him carry things and to help him up the, the hard parts of the terrain, verse three says that this elderly patriarch who is now 100 years old cuts the wood for the burnt offering himself. That shows us how intensely personal this process is for him. He could have asked the servants to do it. He could have asked people in his household to do it when he was still at home in Beersheba. But no, he cuts it himself because this is his son he's going to sacrifice in obedience to his God. And so he's going to take personal responsibility for it. Verse four says that Abraham saw the place that God was leading him to on the third day. Three days of traveling with his beloved son Isaac, talking with him. You know, we can imagine them laughing together, just enjoying this journey together as father and son. As far as Isaac knew, they were just heading out together to offer sacrifices to God. They were going to church to worship. He thought they were going to offer sacrifices when in truth they were going to offer him as the sacrifice. That's something, a dark, horrible truth that only Abraham knew. And that must have meant that every step for him, for this elderly man who loved his son, every single step of that three-day journey was absolute agony. Every step he took was an intentional choice to put God's will before his own. Now, where did he get the strength to do this? Verse five gives us some insight. As they approach Mount Moriah, verse five says that Abraham instructs his young men to stay with the donkey while he and the boy together, the two of them, go over there and worship. And then he says this, before they come again to you. Don't miss the significance of this last phrase in verse five. Abraham is fully expecting that somehow, in some way, both he and Isaac will come again to these two waiting servants down the mountain. Well, how could that be? Well, we need another Holy Spirit-inspired writer of scripture to explain this to us. The author of Hebrews, commenting on Genesis 22, wrote this in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's the whole crushing the seed before it sprouted. Abraham reasoned, listen, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Abraham knew, without a shadow of a doubt, that Isaac's death could never derail God's plans. Even death could not threaten the promises 
of God. If God said that Isaac would be the one to inherit the covenant, that it was through Isaac that Abraham's offspring would be named, then Isaac it would be, even if he had to die and rise to receive those promises. Now let me ask you, which of God's promises are you doubting today? Which of God's promises feel precarious, uncertain, perhaps threatened? Is it the promise to provide for your needs? Is it the promise to satisfy your soul? Is it the promise that he has forgiven your sins if you have put your trust in Christ? Is it the promise that he would free you from slavery to sin if you would but seek him and depend on him through Christ? Perhaps you look at your circumstances or you look at your abilities, your strengths, and you say, nothing is ever going to change for me. I'm never going to be free. I'm never going to be clean. I'm never going to be satisfied. And you know what? You'd be right if you were left on your own abilities and efforts. But thanks be to God, you are not left on your own. God is on your side. And the wonderful reality that we can often forget is that God does not operate within the same rules and limitations that we do. He is the God of resurrection. He can bring life out of death Victory out of defeat, joy out of sadness, even when it seems impossible. You know, we who say that we are believers, that we worship the one true living God, can often forget the godness of God. God becomes a concept. God becomes a figure in heaven that we say we believe, but we don't truly believe. We live as functional atheists. And we forget that God is the God of resurrection. He does the impossible. He can take us out of the filth and stench of our sin and make something beautiful come out of it. His promises are never threatened, not even by death. Abraham finally believed this after walking with God for 25 years. After all his failures, after all his moments where he doubted God's promises and didn't believe them, he finally believed that God was faithful to keep his promises, even though his own senses and understanding told him that it was impossible. And so when Isaac asks where the lamb is for the burnt offering in verse 7, Abraham tells him, God will provide. For himself, the lamb, for a burnt offering, my son. I don't think Abraham is lying to his son there. This is an expression of his faith. That God is going to provide all that they need to obey this command to offer this burnt offering on this mountain. God will provide. All of what Abraham had had learned about God, about God's promises, about God's faithfulness, can actually be summed up in this simple phrase. That God will provide. Even as he's building the altar where his beloved son would be sacrificed, he was believing, God, he will provide. Even when he's tying his dear beloved son upon that altar, he is believing, God will provide. And even as he's reaching out his hand to take up that knife to slaughter his beloved son, he is believing, God will 
provide. That's what true faith looks like. It says God will provide. Even in the most impossible of situations, even when there seems to be no hope, God will provide. God will provide. It is childlike. It is absolute. It is undefiled by our doubts and unlimited by what we perceive to be possible. It's believing that God's word is true and his promises are trustworthy even when everything else tells us otherwise. Now you may be thinking, well, if that's what faith looks like, this childlike absolute trust in God, this immediate obedience, then I could never have it because I am too weak. I could never trust God like that. But you know what? Neither could Abraham. That's why his story is so powerful and relevant to us. Abraham, he wasn't a man of faith. He was just like us. He was a doubter. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. He was selfish and cowardly. More often than not, he walked by sight and not by faith. But God turned this man into the man that we see in Genesis chapter 22, full of faith and trust, even in the midst of the most difficult of trials. If God could do that for a man like Abraham, he can do that for you and for me. Now, it won't be easy. At times, it will be painful because God doesn't just strengthen our faith by pushing a button or increasing the meter of our faith levels. No, he he strengthens our faith through the grace of testing. And he often tests us by taking away the things that we love most. Listen, there is no greater test that you can face than when your greatest loves are threatened. There is no greater test that you can face than when your greatest loves are threatened. Your health, your career, your autonomy, your children. That's how God tested Abraham. And that's how God tests us. That we might learn to walk by faith in the promises of God. Now what about Isaac? We've seen throughout the story about Abraham that Genesis isn't shy to pause on some of the supporting characters in the unfolding narrative of Abraham's life. People like Sarah and Hagar and Lot, even Abimelech, the king of Gerar, they've made these brief appearances to each teach us their own lessons about faith. Now, obviously, the rest of Genesis will tell us more about Isaac and about uh, what he would teach us about walking by faith in the promises of God. But here, even as a young man, Isaac has lessons for, to teach us about walking by faith. So let's turn to our second point, Isaac's submission. <clears throat> now, it's important to note that even though Isaac was just born in the previous chapter, in chapter 21, um, by the events of Je- uh, Genesis chapter 22, he is a young man. We know that because Isaac was able to make this three-day journey by himself. He didn't need to ride that donkey. And he was able to carry the wood for the burnt offering on his own back up that mountain for that last stretch to get up to where Abraham would offer the sacrifice. 
And Abraham calls him the boy in verse 5, which can also be translated as young man. You know, the British commentators I, I read all translated as the lad. He's a young lad right now. Not a small boy, not a fully grown man yet, but he's a young man. He's probably 13 or 14 years old. Now Isaac is one of the central figures, as we've seen in this chapter, but the text only records him speaking once. That's in verse 7. He respectfully addresses Abraham as my father, and then he asks, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Uh, In other words, Isaac knows what making offerings to God entails. This isn't the first time he's done this. He is an active participant in the worshiping community that is led by his father. And he cares about those offerings being done right. Where's the lamb? We we need a lamb, dad, to offer this sacrifice in the right way. The response Abraham gives him in verse eight that God will provide the lamb, my son, it could have been less than satisfactory to this young man, but Isaac, he doesn't let it bother him. Instead, he just trusts his father. He, He believes that his father knows what he's doing and that he will not lead them astray in their worship. Now consider together, We see Isaac being portrayed as a respectful, submissive, trusting young man who wants to worship God personally. And nowhere is this clearer than in verse nine. When Abraham and Isaac finally arrive at the top of Mount Moriah, Isaac finally learns the dark truth for himself. He is to be the burnt offering. He's about to die. This is presumably the last day in his young life that he will live. But rather than run away or protest or fight against his father, which he could have done, he's a young man, he's, his father's 100 years old, he humbly permits his father to tie him up and lay him on the altar This is a heartbreaking scene. Not only is Abraham about to kill his own beloved son, but his son is genuinely a good kid. He is a gentle, innocent child, willing to lay down his life, trusting his father and worshiping his God even to the point of death, he was truly like an unblemished lamb about to be offered in sacrifice to God. Now, Isaac wasn't perfect. Later on in Genesis, we find him committing some of the same sins as his father. He would lie about his wife, Rebecca, the same way that Abraham lied about Sarah, saying that she was his sister. And thus, as Calvin puts it, submitting to the prostitution of his wife. And like his father, he would later reject God's promises as he would prefer and dote upon Esau, even though he knew that Jacob would be the one who would inherit the promises. Isaac wasn't perfect, but here in Genesis 22, he sets an example for all of us as one who trusted God completely, an innocent lamb, in the arms of his shepherd, trusting completely in his protection. 
Uh, That's just a little brief excursus on Isaac as we lead to our final point and our main character in our text, God's provision, or the Lord's provision. As Abraham is about to take up this knife to slaughter his innocent, beloved son, God calls out his name twice in verse 11 to communicate the urgency of this moment. Abraham, Abraham. And just like he does in verse one, Abraham responds immediately and submissively. He says, here I am. And then what does God do? God lifts the curtain. He reveals that it was all a test. And he shows and explains Abraham what the purpose of the test was. He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now this language in verse 12 is very interesting. Because we might have expected God to say, now I know that you trust God. Or now I know that you love God. But instead it says, now I know that you fear God. Now we know, for those who have grown up in the church or you know, heard teaching about the fear of God, we know what it is not. It is not the kind of terror that you might feel when you watch a scary movie or when you have a nightmare. That kind of fear makes us want to go away from the thing that scares us. The fear of God is of such a nature that it draws us closer to God. We often hear it described and defined as an experience of reverential awe. Now that's true. But that's only part of the biblical definition of the fear of God. In fact, what our text teaches is not even the full definition of the fear of God. It is a multifaceted, very complicated concept, kind of like love. Love is an emotion, but it's an action. It's a feeling, but it's uh, an expression of the will. The fear of God is complex. Yes, it is an experiential Um, sense of awe, but it is also uh, uh, the act of trusting and obeying God as well. God knew that Abraham feared him, not because Abraham fell to his knees in reverential worship or because he trembled at God's presence. No, he knew that Abraham feared him because he obeyed. His love for God led him to trust in God in such a way that it resulted in obedience to God. These three elements, loving God, trusting God, obeying God, all coming together to to, uh, characterize Abraham's faith and his life as one who feared God. Commentator Kenneth Matthews puts it this way, fear God describes the man's obedience and trust motivated by his love of God. It's very helpful definition. Fear God describes the man's obedience and trust motivated by his love of God. And we we see this combination of love, trust, and obedience later on in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him. And so when we consider what God is looking for in the life of his people, he's not just looking for love in the abstract. He's not just looking for trust by itself. He's not even looking for obedience to his commands. He's looking for love that motivates trust that leads to obedience. And so, if you say that you love God, you say that you trust him, but you're not obeying God, you're not 
fearing God. I was at a wedding recently where again and again, people in the wedding were talking about how they love Jesus and all this for the glory of God. At the end of the speeches, they're like, let's go get drunk. That is not the fear of God. Well, as a result of Abraham's fear, God rewards Abraham with a number of wonderful and precious promises in verses 15 to 18. The interesting thing about these verses is that none of these promises are new. They're actually the same promises that God has given to Abraham since he first spoke to him in Genesis chapter 12. The only difference between this set of promises and the previous ones is that God communicates the promises here in such a way that helps Abraham feel absolutely certain that God is going to fulfill them. You see that in verse 15 where God says, he says, he swears upon himself. Sorry, verse 16. By myself I have sworn. He swears upon his own holy name. That's not something he does every day. There's probably only three or four examples in the Old Testament where God does that. I swear by myself. In Hebrews uh, again, Hebrews chapter six explains that this meant that God was, was trying to show even more convincingly that he would keep his promises. And then the way that God uses the language in the giving of his promises, again, is meant to communicate this certainty. He says, I will surely bless you. That's not something he said before. I will surely bless you. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring. And so in other words, Abraham's obedience didn't earn him the promises They only earned him greater certainty that the promises would be fulfilled. The promises would always rest on grace. Grace alone, God's sovereign choice to say, I bless you not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who I am. And I'm faithful to keep these promises not because of what you do, but because I am faithful. But obedience, the fruit of Abraham's obedience would be that he would experience a greater degree of certainty that, yes, these promises will take place. God is faithful to keep his promises. And that is essentially the end of Abraham's story. It ends with God's definitive word that he would indeed do all that he had promised to do. He swore it on himself. To do this for this doubter who became a believer, this disobedient man who became obedient in impossible circumstances. And this is meant to inspire us, to imitate Abraham's example and to pray that God would make us the same kind of man, same kind of person that Abraham became. But as valuable as those lessons are, that is not what Abraham's story is ultimately about Abraham's story is not ultimately about pointing us to himself. It's meant to point us to the one who was greater than him. The one who would walk by faith like him, yes, but who would do it without fault, with the perfect fear of God in his heart. You know, it is no coincidence that these events in Genesis chapter 22 took place on Mount Moriah. That is where, as 2 Chronicles chapter 3 would tell us, that is where Solomon's temple would be built, in the heart of Jerusalem. These events are taking place in the same place 
where Jesus Christ would be arrested and accused and taken outside the temple walls where he, an innocent man, would carry wood on his back up a hill called Calvary, where he would willingly submit to his father in absolute obedience, where he, the perfect, unblemished lamb of God, would not only be willing to die, but actually die to make atonement for sin. Abraham may not have known this, but his story was setting up the greatest story of all. When God the Father would give his son, his only son, his son whom he loved, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, the fact that the father was willing to do what he did not require Abraham to do should leave us in breathless wonder. You know, God didn't just travel three days to get to the place where he would sacrifice his son Every step in redemption history across thousands of years brought him closer to the point where his son would be crucified as an offering for sin. The creation of Adam and Eve, the preservation of Noah and the ark, the giving of the promises to Abraham, the the formation of the nation of Israel, the exodus, all those steps was a step closer to the point where the father would give his son for sinners like us, that we might be forgiven and have our sins atoned for. God did not spare his own son for us. He did not hold back what was most precious to him. He gave him up for wretched sinners, not because we deserved it, not because we worked for it, but because of his grace. And now because of that grace, all who call upon the name of Christ can be called the very children of God, the sons and daughters of the Most High, to the praise of his glorious grace. Abraham lived his entire life without knowing the fullness of God's plans, and yet his words hint at those plans in verses 13 and 14. As he looks upon this ram caught in the thicket by his horns and offers it as an offering instead of his son, he declares, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And this saying became so widespread that it became a saying, by the time Genesis was written, it became a saying that on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And that is what the Lord has done in the giving of Jesus Christ. He has provided on the mount of the Lord a mount called Calvary, where the Lord has not just provided a ram, but his precious son, who alone can make atonement for our sins. So as we draw this sermon and this series about the promises of God to a close, I want to end by briefly leaving us with five lessons that I hope that we would take into our approach into the promises of God. First, certainty certainty about the promises of God. We don't need new promises. That's what those who doubt the sufficiency of the scriptures believe. 
They want something new. They want God to give them a new word that is divorced from scripture that is gonna bring excitement and joy into their lives that the scriptures do not speak about. We do not need new promises. We need greater certainty about the old promises. All through his life, every time God spoke to Abraham about his promises, he spoke the same things to him again and again and again. Sometimes he gave a little bit more detail Sometimes he expanded on them a little bit to give them a glimpse of of what this would look like, but they were the same promises. The essence never changed. Even at the end of the story in Genesis chapter 22, God doesn't reward Abraham with a new set of promises. He only communicates a reiteration of the old. We do not need new promises. We need greater certainty about the old ones. And one of the ways that we grow in our certainty is by our obedience. It's by our obedience. If you do not obey God, if you spit upon the authority and commands of scripture, you cannot look upon the promises of God and say, God is really gonna do that for me. But when you live a submitted life to God and say, I am going to obey you even though I will fail, By your grace and by the power of your spirit, I will seek to obey you. A fresh wind of the certainty of God's promises fills your soul. And you walk by faith and not by sight. Certainty. Second, waiting. Waiting. This is a second lesson about the promises of God. The fulfillment of God's promises doesn't happen all at once. They take time. Because God doesn't operate in the same timelines as we do. Often he waits to fulfill his promises until conditions are met that we perhaps don't even know about or don't see. But he waits for those conditions so that when he does fulfill his promises, his goodness and his righteousness would be on full display. We saw that in Genesis 15. When God tells Abraham, I'm gonna give you the whole land of Canaan. But it's not going to happen until your descendants, descendants, descendants have spent 400 years in a foreign country and then I bring them back. Why? Why would it take so long? Because the sins of the Canaanites were not yet complete. The sins of the, the, the natives in Canaan were not so dark and so evil that it would justify God's people coming in and driving them out and destroying them. God's promises take time, often because he is working in other ways so that the timing of his promises becomes perfect. And the way that we learn to wait upon God's promises has a direct correlation with the extent to which we love God. The more we love God, the more we are willing to wait upon God. We saw that in the story of Sarah. Sarah wasn't willing to wait upon God's promises. Instead, offered Hagar to Abraham to have a child through her as a surrogate mother because she loved the idea of having children more than she loved God. And so if we are to become a people who would be willing to wait upon the Lord and the fulfillment of his promises, we must grow in our love for God. And the only way that we can grow in our love for God is to know his great love for us in Christ. Certainty, waiting, third, cherishing. Cherishing. I hope that this series has taught us all to cherish the promises, to see how God 
uses his promises to propel us to obedience. As Calvin so wonderfully said, God stimulates, uh, stimulates us more powerfully to the performance of duty by promising than by ordering. That is a wonderful quotation. God stimulates us more powerfully to the performance of duty by obedience, uh, to obedience by promising than by ordering. Now one way our series has taught us to cherish the promises is by showing us the consequences of not cherishing them. We saw that in the story of Lot. Lot did not cherish the promises. He cherished his earthly wealth instead. Just why he left Abraham, he left Abraham's promises and settled in the fertile Jordan Valley where the city of Sodom was. And at first he pitches his tent as far as Sodom, but then in Genesis chapter 16, we see him having moved into the city. And then in Genesis 19, he is sitting at the gate of Sodom as one of its elders. And by the, by the time Genesis concludes his story, he is lying naked in a cave with nothing except two incestuous daughters. That is a stark picture of what awaits us when we abandon God's promises and choose to value lesser things more than the things of God. And so we cherish the promises by studying them, by memorizing them, by praying them, and by believing them so that we would not fall into the same traps as Lot. Fourth, got two more. Fourth, celebrating. We need to celebrate God's promises when they are fulfilled in our lives, even when they are only partially fulfilled. That was the lesson of Beersheba in Genesis chapter 21. Abraham knew that he wouldn't see the fulfillment, or at least the complete fulfillment of the promise of land until many, many centuries down the line. But when he received ownership of that little well in Gerar that he negotiates with Abimelech, it, it belongs to him now. You know, this, is, this is his plot of land in the land of Canaan. He doesn't just pout and complain and says, oh, what a puny little well. That doesn't compare to all the land I'm gonna get eventually. No, he, he celebrates, he rejoices, he plants a tree. He's like, this is, this is my home. I'm gonna make it mine. I'm gonna decorate it. I'm gonna plant this tree and then he builds an altar, presumably, and he worships. He calls upon the name of the Lord, calling him the everlasting God. Listen, when we see the little evidences of God's grace in our lives, even when the whole picture is not yet clear, even when we're still waiting for the complete fulfillment of God's promises in our lives, let us not look beyond those small evidences of God's grace. Let us pause, let us rejoice, let us celebrate, let us share them with each other. Lastly, fulfillment. Fulfillment, most importantly, we need to remember that the fulfillment of God's promises do not depend on us. They depend on Christ. Second Corinthians chapter one, all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is the only basis upon which we can say Jehovah Jireh with confidence. The Lord will provide. It's not because we have earned it. It's not because we have become righteous enough. 
It is because Christ has died for our sins and rose for our justification. This saying, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, ought to be the anthem of all those who walk by faith. You struggling with not having a job that's paying the bills? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Going through a season where your heart feels empty and your soul feels dry? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Experiencing exceptional bondage to sin that you don't feel that you can be free of and you are tempted to resign yourself to a lifetime of being bound to that sin, the person who walks by faith says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Abraham knew this because he looked back at that ram caught by its horns in the thicket. How much more should we when we can look back at the sun caught on that cross by the nails piercing his hands and his feet. We can have confidence that the Lord will provide because the Lord has provided. Not just for some of our needs, but for our greatest need, our need for a savior. And if he provided us with this savior, his son, his only son, his son whom he loved, how will he not provide us with all that he has promised? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who redeems broken lives, who calls sinners to be used by you for your wonderful purposes in this world. I pray that the promises of God that you have given to us in the scriptures would become exceedingly precious and more and more a part of our daily lives in how we walk by faith and not by sight, that you might be glorified. Thank you that they all find their yes in Christ, not in the pastor, not in sovereign grace, not in any group of believers in this world, but they find their yes in Christ and in Christ alone. Let our anthem be that the Lord will provide. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.